Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we're recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples past, present, and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University Schools of Culture, History and Language, and Archaeology and Anthropology, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association and coming to you from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. I am your familiar stranger today, Ian Pollock, together with my fellow familiar strangers, Julia Brown. Hello, hello. Simon Theobald. Hello. And Jody Lee Trembach. Hi. Now, before we get started, I'm just going to, from left to right, congratulations, Julia Brown, who submitted her thesis two weeks ago. Yeah, maybe three. Time has lost all meaning. already. <laughs> Thanks, Ian. <laughs> and welcome back to Jody Lee Trembach, who has been on the road for four months. I'm so happy to be back. And Thank where you. have you been in the interim? I have been in Argentina, Ecuador, Bolivia, Sweden, and Iceland. Jody, welcome back. Now, I can't start our normal format and ask you guys all what are we thinking about this week without mentioning first something that's been consuming the online anthropology community for six weeks, and that's how talk. But I think we've been pronouncing that incorrectly. It would be ho instead of how. Trying our best, we think it's ho. We're not well positioned to say a lot on this topic, and our non-anthro listeners might be kind of confused by it. For people who want to learn more, there are over 20 blog posts on Hotok out there. So we'll just say, we at The Familiar Strange stand with grad students. We stand against abuse. We still believe in open access. We're committed to making our own project less of a white space, and we're redoubling our commitment to making anthropology and university life welcoming for marginalized scholars and students. Right, everybody? Amen. Agreed. Yep. All right, let's get started. Jody, what are you thinking about this week? I have been thinking about the techniques that politicians use to persuade their public. Trump and his administration introduced a zero-tolerance policy about immigrants crossing the border outside of the allocated places, basically saying that anybody that does that will no longer be um, processed underneath immigration law, they will be criminally prosecuted. And the consequences of that are that parents bringing their children into the country are immediately uh, separated from those children because the parents get taken to jail while the children can't go to jail with them. Over 2,300 children were separated from their parents at the US-Mexico border between May 5th and June 9th. So obviously that caused a massive outcry in the US in both the public and in the media. And the way that the narrative has been portrayed is that then Trump backed down, that he said, okay, we won't separate families anymore. But I am actually wondering if this was a technique on his part. And the technique that I think it might have been is a psychology technique called door in the face, where you make a really outrageous request first. And then because the other person says no, no, you compromise, say something less outrageous, something much more reasonable, and there's like a reciprocity. And so you're much more likely to say yes, according to the psychological literature, if you've said no to an outrageous request first and the other person appears to have compromised. And I wonder if that's what's going on here, whether Trump was in fact saying this outrageous thing and then enacting it so that it caused this outrage in the media and in the public and then backed down, and I've put that in inverted commas for you there. So if that were true, this is a, a psychological theory. 
So it's supposed to be used in one-on-one kind of contexts, one person influencing another, and the study of it is based on how individuals are affected by these techniques. And I want to know whether you think that the public response to this is changed because it is a public response, because it's a mass response, not an individual one. I think there are two issues here, one of which I think is your broader question, which if I'm interpreting correctly, I understand it to be a question about whether or not social psychology can be kind of measured up to large-scale societies. And most of the data that psychology and psychiatry draws on tends to be from a very limited subset of Western societies, and that's long been a recognized problem in psychiatry and uh, psychology. I, I think as an anthropologist, what we can say is you, everything needs to be taken on its own terms. I don't think I don't think there are rules for humans. I think humans are constantly creating and redefining and troubling everything we do. And every time we say, we try and say, well, this is a hard rule for human beings, we get astounded by how it's not, in fact, the case. Secondly, I think there is a point here, and I don't think we can separate this issue from the particular politics of the time. I think that whatever he may appear to have backed down on, what it's done in effect has drawn attention to the inhumanity of policies that existed from before he was president as well. Attention to policies of uh, such as the was the Flores Agreement, where you can't hold children in detention without their parents for more than 20 days, something like that, that was already in effect from the Obama years, or I'm not sure how long it's been. The public didn't know. Now they know. It's created a situation where there are demands for even further concessions, even further leniency, because it's drawn so much attention to the horrendousness of American policy in this area. So the idea that making a concession would make him appear reasonable and allow the other side to feel like they have room to make a concession as well, I don't think we can apply it in this particular case because of the way it's drawn attention to something so bad. I think what's happening here is an epitome of this kind of reactionary boil-over phenomenon in politics where there's no long-term plans ever really at the moment and that's becoming more of a problem but at the same time that's what people are responding to. All right well unfortunately that's all we have time for on that segment. Moving on, Simon tell us what are you thinking about this week? I am thinking about the predictive power of humanities research. So the backstory to this is recently I was on Counterpoint, a show run by former liberal minister Amanda Vanstone on Radio National. And I spoke about the relationship between Iran and China. Uh, And at the end of our interview, she asked me what I thought was going to happen, whether the, the withdrawal of the US from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the nuclear agreement between uh, Iran and six other countries about its nuclear program, she she was asking if, in effect, whether the U.S. withdrawal would result in Iran moving closer to Europe or closer to its kind of authoritarian allies in China and Russia. And I gave an answer, um, but afterwards I was thinking, are, are we allowed to make predictions? And I think this is definitely not something that people in, who work in IR, people who work in governance and so on, they definitely make predictions all the time. But I think those of us who are anthropologists find this issue much more vexed because anthropology has always been the study of the study of human societies as they are, and I think it's historically been loath to kind of make predictions, you know. And I, but at the same time, um, I have the voice of my beloved mother in my head, constantly saying to me, "We have to make our research more relevant. We have to be out there making sure people know what to think." And I don't want to kind of paraphrase her as a fascist. She's certainly not. But there is an <laughs> argument, good call. Uh, there is an argument that she makes, and a very valid one. What is the point of social research if it cannot tell us what? a different way of living or a better way of living should be. So that's my question for you. What Can we as anthropologists have a kind of more productive role in predicting 
how society can and should be? I, ju- I think it's, it's just a really vexed question. And I, it, it does deserve an answer, I think, because really we all come away from our research projects with some very insightful analysis of particular human societies. But if that doesn't tell us anything other than that humans are diverse, then what good does it have really? I guess there's two elements to this, right? There's like what we are comfortable with and I think that comes down to individuals. I think most people at this table would not feel very comfortable making predictions, but I know lots of older researchers who probably would feel quite comfortable with that. But the other side of that is what the general public wants from researchers and wants from universities. Um, They want to see that we're actually doing something that's going to help them if they're going to be providing funds to what we do. And I think everybody wants the comfort of believing that they can be told that things are going to be all right, or if they're not going to be all right, in what way are they not going to be all right so I can prepare? Yes, I think think that's an interesting case. But I think getting back to the point about whether or not we should be doing this. I often wonder, see, in the back of my mind, I think I always have this notion that in doing my research, even if my material, kind of material of my thesis is not directly relevant to broader questions that Australian society has, I like to think that in knowing Iran and Iranian society and in humanizing it, I can show that there are ways that this is the broader narrative, right? That there are ways that we can interact with other societies who might have very profoundly different ideas about what a good life looks to us, but we can still do and have interactions without them leading to conflict. And I feel like that's something that you, Julia, would kind of sympathize with. Isn't this the point of theory? To be refining our knowledge such that other people can investigate things that we essentially set up hypotheses for. I know anthropology isn't a science, but by going into a field site and having read literature before you go there and working towards adding to knowledge about that field site, isn't that in a way feeding into this idea that that knowledge can become more predictable? I think we're running up against one of the basic problems of anthropology, which is whether the things we learn in one field site or in one time, in one place, are generalizable to any other time and place. And in my recent podcast conversation with Vijendra Rao, this came up a lot in the context of development, where there's a real tension between the desire to acknowledge that social systems are different and they're intervening in social systems, trying to change them to make them more equal or to help people make more money or blah, 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 blah. There's a tension between acknowledging that social systems are all highly localized and not really that comparable and a desire to build global best practices so that something that worked, you know, worked, the development success from one place can be replicated in another place. There's a constant back and forth between those. And at the same time, for more than 50 years, an acknowledgement that the most important changes that come out of development interventions are usually the unintended consequences. But see, I'm not sure. I mean, I wouldn't think about it. If my thesis were to achieve anything, I would like it to be that mass Australia, should they read it, goes, hey, look, these things are a little bit more complicated than I thought they were, or maybe a lot more complicated than I thought they were before. And that that means that people, I guess, hesitate. I guess, yeah, like I would like people hesitate and think a little bit harder before they do things. Hesitation and complication, of course, are the best friends of uh, action. So moving on, we're out of time on that segment. Julia, what are you thinking about this week? So lately I have been thinking about the pressure to pick a side on a topic rather than finding out a little bit more about it. So this is building 
on much of what Simon was saying and Jody as well, because it seems to be a big part of politics these days. A recent example was when ANU withdrew from negotiations with the Ramsey Centre, who were going to bequest a donation to ANU to set up a Centre for Studies of Western Civilization. Basically, ANU's withdrawal was quickly perceived as either not taking a consistent approach with the donors, such as the Centre for Arab and Islamic Studies, or the decision was applauded for taking a stand for academic freedom. And at first, there wasn't much info on this topic. So before we knew a little bit more, and our VC has recently written a blog about it, which we'll attach to this episode, I was talking to quite a conservative friend of mine, and he was vehemently against ANU's decision. And my gut reaction was just to defend ANU. Now, I still stand by my position with this issue, but having read a lot more about it now. But the point is I didn't even stop to think about it before jumping in and arguing with him because I'd already started making assumptions and had this underlying loyalty to ANU. So what I'm noticing more frequently is how there's this need to find a clear narrative quite quickly. It just seems that things are getting increasingly nasty And I'm wondering if you guys think there is any hope for people slowing down a little bit and finding the nuances rather than clutching for these quick opinions on topics. Yeah, no, I don't think there's any hope for that. Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no. Yeah, no. (laughs) One thing that gives me some hope, speaking about politics here in Australia, as opposed to in America, is that here there are actually multiple political parties. In America, basically you got two. And there's a couple like weird parasitic ones like the libertarians that sort of vaguely exist, but they don't have proper operations and they certainly don't have elected officials anywhere. But what that means is that because there's only two parties, every issue gets hived off to one side or the other. Every issue gets split into two opposing camps. And there are plenty of political issues that I think don't necessarily lend themselves to an opposition between left and right. And yet every single thing that comes up has to split along that divide. Here in Australia, where there are so many more political parties, like the Australian Pirate Party, for instance, which I don't know what they stand for, or the Australian Bullet Train Party, which I do know what they stand for, for a bullet train and nothing else. Is that a right position? Is that a left wing (laughs) position or a right wing position? It's a bullet train position. It's a a very fast position. But the question of left-right becomes kind of irrelevant because there's this other option out there which manages to split that issue off from the overriding polarization. I would say that like the tenor of Australian politics is pretty bad and we're often in the news media around the world for our particularly feisty parliamentary question time sessions. But compared to the level of like hyperpartisanization of America, Australia is like a dreamboat. That's not to mean that there isn't, like, I think certainly at the fringes, and I think the right wing in Australia are very kind of like, you know. So you have hope. Like Jules's question was, do we have hope? I was just going to say, and more to this question of having a yes or no answer to things, having a clear opinion. I think there's something to be said for taking time to think through things in a more complex way. And my sense is that there's just less and less room to do that because Mm. we have to take a stand. Is it narcissistic to take a position or do we really have to put ourselves on the record? Right. You can't be silent anymore. Yeah. It's that if you saw someone be like, if someone was slut-shaming someone and you were like, I'm going to reserve my position because I don't know what happened, most of the Twitter sphere, at least, 
would no longer consider that to be a reasonable position to take. Well, I think social media certainly has, social media explains a lot of this hastiness. It does. I mean, it provides an instant record for all of it. I mean, talking about like, do you have to put yourself on the record? We each have a record. We each have a Twitter account. Did we or did we not say something at the time? If somebody decides to ask that question about this, about one of us, they can go back and look. Yeah, so maybe that's what it's about. I don't know. I find it hard to be convinced that social media isn't both. It provides a service for what humanity wants to do just as much as it is a reason that things then go on to happen. So I don't know that that, that would explain so, things. No, I don't think it explains things entirely, but it maybe explains why people are becoming desensitised to these horrendous things that have been said about certain people or, Yeah, true. Know. Well, they said that after the Vietnam War, didn't they, that because that was the first TV war, war that had been televised, that that was the start of our desensitization as Interesting. a society. I, I think there's definitely an element of truth to that. And I think some, in some ways this is actually a question about the way in which we sense time and I think that historically, it just took a really long time for a letter to get from A to B. And you just, you literally did not have the access to media that could present you with such a variety of opinions. And that doesn't mean that, I mean, definitely Facebook, you're right, it's both facilitator in that it facilitates pre-existing human behaviors, but it also, it does obviously push and meld and mold and so on in particular ways as well. I guess I just want to encourage people to slow down a little bit. And not talk about things they don't know about. Yeah. So you're saying we Be should informed, get off the but <laughs> <laughs> I think people talking about things they don't know about, that is the zeitgeist that we are in currently. <laughs> <laughs> There's one defining feature of our times. It's that. Well, we're going to have to move on. On to me. And what I was thinking about this week was my attempts to work the scholarship of people from my field site into my thesis. And this came up in a couple of ways. One of them, I think this is quite common in Indonesia, but that a lot of people there have written a book, but that book, maybe they just got one or two copies printed and it just sits in their basement somewhere. There was also a man I was lucky to get to do some work with. I didn't learn about his existence until right near the end of my fieldwork, but he's a, sort of an amateur scholar, a nurse by training, but had written over 30 books about local culture in the part of Indonesia where I was working, uh, books about language, books about poetry, books about myths, books about... Uh, material culture and architecture, all kinds of things. Also still just sitting in a stack in his house. There was one other route that I took, which is that I went to Flores University, Unflor in Ende, and got permission to go through the library there where they had all of the dissertations. And so I went through stacks and stacks and stacks looking for ones written by people who were from my area writing about history or social science or something of that nature and making some photocopies. I got more than 40 theses but I've hardly read any of it. I, I'm actually, I've been back for more than a year and I'm only just starting to get to some of it. And there's some really helpful things in there. But I wondered if you guys have, uh, if you guys have also find yourself like trying to make recourse to things that were written by people who, like the people that you're studying or that you're, that you're studying with, the people that you're learning from, are they doing their own analysis? And if so, how are you using that in your writing? Well, I guess to apply your question to my particular field site, I certainly read a lot of the clinical literature on schizophrenia and I also read autobiographies by people with schizophrenia. 
That's interesting. So it's analysis, but by people who aren't anthropologists. They're yeah. insiders. They're not anthropologists. No, I, I don't know of an anthropologist with schizophrenia that has written about the schizophrenia. Hmm. Uh, I guess for me, I see anything written by participants or people like my participants as traces of culture. And so I like to follow those traces and see where they lead me. But I also have to be really careful because I study academics. And so if I look at the papers that my participants write, I can't then use those papers as material culture because then I would be revealing the identities of my participants. So I can cite them as scholars, but I can't use them as such because they are in the public domain. So, But that's a fairly specific kind of... That's I had that challenge. as well, actually. One of my participants had written a couple of books and I couldn't ah. quote him at all in, in those books in my thesis because it would have identified him. When we say we observe people, personally, I think people are distributed. I think people distribute themselves into their writing. They distribute themselves into their anything they create and any interaction that they have. And so all of that is valuable for our observations. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because there's a fundamental difference here between using somebody's, you know, somebody's texts that they've written as a part of observing them and as a product, as a, as a, what is the term that you use, as a cultural trace, versus putting it on the same level as the other peer-reviewed Western scholarship that we use to analyze things. I think you touched on a real dilemma, which is as anthropology moves haltingly towards a greater decolonization, there is this greater attempt to incorporate indigenous and non-Western ways of being and understanding the world, right? And making those academically equivalent to Western materials still requires you to push heavily against years of accreted tradition in anthropology. Doing this, making them equal, I think is in some ways a, sort of a radical act at the moment. You don't agree? Yeah, I'm just thinking in terms of, like, is I agree with what you're saying and I actually now disagree with what I said. I hate it when you do that. God damn it. But yeah, that's I, a sign of good thinking. Through oh, yes, nuances. that's true. Oh, I'm nuanced. Yay me. But I do think that that brings into question whether we should be observing people at all. Well, on that note. Yeah, we're going to have to cut things off before we talk ourselves out of a job. <laughs> uh, I want to thank all of my fellow familiar strangers today, Julia Brown. Thank you, Ian. Simon Theobald. Thank you. Jody Lee Trembaugh. Thanks, Ian. And me, your host, Ian Pollock. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes, all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show and it helps us make the show better. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything you want to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com tweet at TFS tweets or look us up on Facebook and Instagram music by Pete Dabro you can find a link to his EP in the show notes special thanks to Julia Miller Will Grant Nick Tremboth and Maud Rowe thank you for listening until next time keep talking strange yeah <laughs> rubble. <laughs> <laughs>